This is Wednesday, November 10, 2021. This is Lawyer Talk off the record on the air. Norm and I were in here uh, moments ago. We were going to interface with the Blitz like we normally do on Wednesday. And uh, while we were waiting, we got in a bit early and started chatting about China. Ended up with a rather lengthy episode solving the world's China problems as well as uh, perhaps some other things. And uh, what I wanted to do then, instead of just going right in the Blitz, we wrap that show up and we are going to interface with the Blitz separately. I'm dropping the audio separately. So if you're confused, don't be. Tune in. It's happening right now. Here's the Blitz. All right, it's time for some legal advice with Steve Palmer. Hey, Steve, how are you, sir? Hey, doing great. How are you guys doing? Excellent, my friend. We have uh, lots of texts. We have some calls here, so uh, we'll get right to them. Okay, do you waive your rights when you buy uh, tickets uh, with small print on them? Is there a cap on how much plaintiffs can get? Okay, so I, I'm definitely not reading the right part of the question. What the hell's wrong with my text? It guys? has to do with the Astro World thing and people suing Live Nation and Travis Scott. And do you, when you purchase tickets, is there do you waive your rights in a situation like that? Well, it's such a broad question. I, I would say this: when you purchase tickets, there are terms and conditions of it on the back. So, and I think this we talked about this on another occasion about something else that uh, I think the the small print typically covers, which is like show cancellations or. Um, refunds or if, if something ha- if there's an act of God that prevents the the show or maybe even there's there might be some limited liability uh, type waivers on there about lost or stolen items but um, generally you would not waive your rights with respect to negligence or uh, or um, acts that uh, could have been prevented in other words there, there are still duties on behalf of the promoters of the facilities to provide a safe, uh, environment to go see the show. You can't, you, you can't wave on the back of a ticket your your right, so to speak, uh, for them not to be negligent or uh, even reckless in in uh, protecting your safety. Uh, so here, like the Houston show, you're going to have all sorts of lawsuits as a result of this, either because the security was lapsed or when uh, maybe the performer was sort of inciting a riot. Uh, or encouraging people to get a little bit out of hand uh, and they didn't have enough security staff to deal with it, or maybe you would say that they should have shut it down sooner before it got really, really bad. And I understand there was a bottleneck trying to get in. I mean, the whole thing was a disaster from the outset. And I don't think anybody's waived their rights to be safe uh, and enjoy the show in a, in a normal manner. Now, there's other waivers on those tickets that probably are enforceable. Um, and, and some states may limit liability, I think, like uh, on the Indy 500 on injuries that might happen. But it wouldn't be that would be like if there's a, an accident or something that caused an injury, they couldn't waive your uh, your damage rights, I don't believe, or don't waive your damage rights, I don't believe, on on things that that should be prevented. Uh, so I, I guess it would all depend. But I think on the on the concert situation down in Texas, uh, it's going to be game on, man. Lawsuits coming. All right, Steve Palmer's on with us right now. If you guys have uh, legal questions, we'll take your calls at 821-9970. Also, a text at 99700. I guess that um, Jen is writing in about um, maybe a trailer park or something getting taken over. And since the new owners have taken over, some sketchy things have uh, been done. Like now they've been sent a notice that they're going to be charging a trash fee every month. Is that legal? Yeah, that's such a, another kind of broad question. Is that legal? Um, I guess I would say I would need to see what the terms and conditions are on whatever uh, lease agreements uh, exist. Um, I, I understand that most of those 
<clears throat> excuse me, most of those are going to have some sort of agreement that folks have signed either to rent the unit that they're in or to rent the lot that they've parked their own unit on. And there's going to be association type of agreements uh, that are relevant that we'd have to read and maybe even read the small print with a magnifying glass to see. And then you've got this this notion that uh, when ownership changes hands, what do, what is the lessee, the person who's renting uh, the place, what are their responsibilities and rights? Again, you start with the written agreement. Um, I have a commercial building. I lease it to employer to uh, some tenants, and in my lease is uh, are some provisions about what is to occur if I sell the building and uh, what their rights are. So it's all understood up front what it is. So I, I guess I would highly encourage this person to read the agreement if there is one. If there is not, then the courts generally will sort of uh, default to what is normal in the industry. I confess I have no idea what would normal what normal would be in the industry. But uh, on the face of it, um, charging a fee for trash doesn't seem like it's going to be unreasonable unless the fee is unreasonable. I would just need to see more and uh, do some research. Now, uh, since you practice law and you're in the court a lot, how accurate is a breathalyzer test? Uh, the age-old question. Uh, breathalyzer tests can be accurate. They are not always accurate. Uh, there's a couple of things scientifically that uh, that you got to know. It's, they're based on something called, uh, primarily on something called Henry's Law, which is a conversion ratio. They take a a representative sample of your breath and they uh, they sort of extrapolate it up and convert it to uh, they extrapolate. Well, first they take a sample of your breath and they have to extrapolate that up to a bigger sample mathematically, and then they have to convert uh, the amount of alcohol contained in your breath to what it might be on your blood. Uh, and it's called Henry's Law. And they come up with that conversion ratio by sort of an average of what everybody's ratio would be. And and so it, it all sounds great, but if you're in the margins of the average, well, it's not very accurate. Other things that can impact breath test results would be radio frequency interference, power surges, uh, things called mouth or something called mouth alcohol or contaminants in your in your mouth that is not uh, deep lung breath that can cause a spike on those machines. There's like a mouthwash? A mouthwash might do it. Or say you belch or burp as you as you go, yeah, it's going to detect... Mouth alcohol. It's going to detect mouth alcohol. They're supposed to have okay. something called a slope detector, which would kick it off and create what's called an invalid sample. Uh, but that doesn't always work either. Uh, certain conditions like uh, diabetes, if anybody's ever been around somebody with diabetes, you know that sort of pungent uh, odor they can get, uh, that can impact... Um, the reliability of the machines. There's a lot that goes into it. That's the good news. The bad news is in Ohio, we're not allowed to challenge the general reliability of a breath testing machine. So we're sort of stuck with the result unless they have maintained it uh, ineffectively or uh, didn't follow the rules as maintaining it or there's something unique about your test that is problematic. So you probably got more than you wanted there, but I could talk for No, it, it, is it interesting? Because in 2026, they're going to convert all cars. They passed it in Congress yesterday. They have to uh, pass it again, I guess. Uh, they want to install these monitors in all these new cars. I guess your fingerprints, just like your breath, is very individualistic. It's unique to your own self. And so they're going to put a sensor in your car to determine if you're drunk and if your car will start. And if that if that sensor doesn't you know work, they're going to be doing a skin test, uh, your alcohol level through your skin. And if that doesn't work, they're going to do an anal probe. No, and that's going to be on the steering wheel or start button. Yeah, I saw that. This was in that infrastructure bill, I think, initially. There's some version of it. What a bunch of crap. That's all I can say about it. What, what a <laughs> bunch of nonsense. I mean, talk about an invasion of, uh, of, of privacy, et cetera, because then what do they do with that information? Not only does it, you know, maybe it just doesn't start. You could say that's a good thing. 
but then start to think about where that goes, what kind of information you're giving the government, and how are they really going to act on it. So now they know that you tried to start your car under the influence of alcohol. Um, is that going to be used in some other way that you don't like? And I would say inevitably, yes, just follow the yellow brick road, folks, on what the government typically does with that type of information. And uh, it, it always results in more, not less, invasions on your individual rights to privacy. All right. Well, there you go. Steve Palmer, each and every Wednesday with us to give legal advice. We'll get uh, one more here before we let well, Steve this go. Is, this is a compliment. Do we have someone on the phone, too? Okay, cool. Um, we. This is a compliment coming in. It's saying, I want to say thank you to Steve. Everyone, my name is Danielle. Just wanted to thank him for uh, saving me from being railroaded by Columbus Police Department. Thank you. Oh, well, you're welcome. I think, uh, there you, go. you know, I uh, uh, look, I... I I love everybody, including police officers. I also think that everybody can be corrupt, including police officers. So, you know, we do our job and it's there for a reason. So you're welcome. That's like a Pornhub episode waiting to happen. Steve Palmer, police officer, somebody getting railroaded. I mean, this is a uh, a big moneymaker. Here's one via text. Uh, My girlfriend got fired from her job for not getting the vaccine. She got denied for her 50 hours of uh, PTO time. Must be part overtime. Oh, thank you, guys. Uh, what could she do to get her 50 hours of PTO time paid? Or is she pretty much screwed? Can she sue for getting fired or uh, not getting the shot after giving them paperwork saying it's against her religion? She wants PTO or is she SOL? What's happening, Steve? PTO, SOL, DOA. I, I, here's the thing. I, I'm not sure how all this litigation is going to work out. I would definitely try to pursue at least a claim for your pay time off. These are like, this would be like if you had built up vacation time, a lot of times they just call it PTO now where it's just a general hours. You can use them for whatever you want. Uh, and they're your hours. So I don't know the nuance of the law in that there's folks who do uh, employment litigation like this regularly. Uh, and I would definitely make a demand for your PTO time. And then regarding a wrongful termination claim for not getting vaccinated or for an employer, not honoring uh, your request for a religious exemption, I, I think time will tell how all that shakes out. Um, and, you know, maybe uh, maybe there's some uh, light at the end of the tunnel here because I think by trying to take it over with this OSHA mandate uh, out of the federal government, you're, we're going to start to get some litigation on this that, uh, that will have to go through discovery. It will have to uh, really analyze whether these are, uh, these are effective measures or uh, whether they should be used as a basis for employment termination. And, and it's not the same issue as an employer doing it privately versus a mandate. But I think we're going to start to see a little bit of movement on the veracity of these types of requirements. Uh, none of that is good right now because you lost your job. That sucks. Uh, you lost your PTO. That sucks also. And, uh, you know, I, I have nothing but sympathy for you. Um, but we can get you in touch with an employment lawyer to make the demand uh, at, at least and then see where that goes. Give me a shout, 614-224-6142. All right, Matt, line one. Matt, what's your question for Steve Palmer? Okay, so my dad recently passed away. I was omitted from his will, but he gave me his truck while he was alive and put my name on his bank account to pay the bills. Hmm. The executor of the will saying that he needs the bank account to pay the bills, even though my father gave him money to pay the bills after he passed away. Hmm. The question is, is, you know, I know that, you know, since he has, doesn't have the truck anymore when he passed, that's out of the will. But bank account because I'm the only living person that's on it. The bank states that it's mine. Well, let me 
let me see if I can unpack that. First of all, this is all premised by the fact that I do not do probate work like this regularly. And this is a J. Michael question at the end of the day. Uh, that said, if he gave you this bank account, there's a couple different ways he could have done that. He could just say, here, take all my money and you're the new owner of the bank account and your name's on it, not mine. He could have also done it uh, just by adding you as a signator on the account or creating what's called a co-tenancy where you guys both had, at the time he was alive, access to the whole, you both had equal rights. And then there might be a claim that, that that you survived that outside probate. I don't know for sure. Regarding the car, uh, if he, it was a gift to you before he died, and it was titled in your name before he died, and I think that's a gift to you, uh, and that's you know that's yours. Um, all of this is subject to the pro, J. Michael, 614-443-6262. He does my probate. He should also do yours in this situation. It's worthy of a call to him to figure it out because – uh, there's some nuanced stuff with respect to the probate uh, procedure that it just takes somebody who deals with it regularly to know. I, I am good enough to be dangerous, and I confess that up front. Okay. All right, brother. All right. All right. Thank, thank you that. so much, Steve Palmer, for uh, answering the questions. We're lucky to have Steve with us each and every Wednesday. And uh, if you ever want to get Steve off the air, just uh, hit him up on this number. What is it, Steve? Sure, 614-224-6142. Look us up at ohiolegaldefense.com. And like we say every week, put that number in your phone right now. That way when you need it, you have it. All right. Pretty good questions. Uh, excellent questions. Um, I love the question about um, boilerplate, um, you know, disclaimers on the back of a ticket. That You know, so like you go to a Reds baseball game or Clippers and – you know, or, or like, well, in, in, in Columbus, we had a real deal th- uh, thing with uh, Blue Jackets, right? Yeah. Where yeah. that person took a puck, a girl, and uh, she survived for, I don't know, a few hours. And yeah. then uh, because of the concussion, she died later. Um, and the response by the league was to put more netting up, which, you know, is a great idea. People can see through the netting, but it, it does protect, you know, from a, a puck you know, going beyond the, the, the Lexan barriers. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, I don't know how all those things happen, but, um, I, uh, attended the Indy 500 one year, and this is just a, a, a remarkable law, you know, uh, lesson in physics. And I believe the driver of the car was Roberto Guerrero. And I don't know if he tagged a wall or wheel to wheel with another car, but, in an Indy car going down the front straight, maybe at like 230, 240 miles an hour before it gets to one of the four corners, um, he had a wheel come off. And Indy has um, a barricades that, like a you know NASCAR today, a lot of them actually curve over the top of some of the racing surface, so that kind of cups, you know, the action that's happening on the track kind of cups it from uh, pieces, parts, you know, flailing up into the audience and into the grandstands. Well, this particular wheel came off at such a speed with so much mass. Those, those, those tires and wheel combinations, sometimes with a hub and a rotor still bolted onto it, uh, are, it's an enormous amount of mass. And, and, you know, you can't just put a hand or a leg out and stop it. it it'll, it'll, you know, knock you over or kill you. Well, that thing bounced from the track surface all the way to the top of one of the, of the tallest grandstand that they have in Indy. And it hit a guy 
one row down from the very top of the grandstand. Wow. Hit him on the head, killed him. And uh, I believe in response to that, the Indiana legislature uh, uh, wrote a, a liability um, limit for uh, racing uh, in that state. You know, the Indy 500 being so key yeah. to the economy. I mean, because there's year-round commerce going on in, yeah, I mean, Indianapolis is just a hub of racing stuff. There's there's manufacturers and teams, and they're there all year. They're not just there during the month of May. So at any rate, um, sometimes the legislature, you know, like they do with air airline crashes and a lot of things you buy tickets for, they put a limit on the liability. Yeah, and my position on that is I hate all of that. I don't, I don't <laughs> agree with any of the government intrusion on the limits of liability of the jury <laughs> system. If you can go make your case, make your case, and then in theory the market corrects itself and uh, safety measures are taken next time. But uh, and, and I guess the two and big concepts. And then there's a McDonald's cup of coffee. Come on, Steve. I mean, I mean you know. Yeah, I no, mean, hey, great. I want a boiling hot cup of coffee, and then you spill it on your own gonads, right, and sue McDonald's. If I mean, you go, on. if you go research that case, the actually outcome there was a lot more to that, and, <laughs> and and when you dig into it, you will find okay, man, uh, and you won't be so offended by it, okay, um, because McDonald's had noticed they were on warning for it. There was other issues that had occurred, and uh, there was uh, they had some. So here's what happens, and we'll just we can deal with McDonald's or take it out of that equation and talk about this notion of law and economics, where you have to, companies, big companies, will often decide is it cheaper just to pay the claims oh sure than it is to fix a dangerous problem and you can imagine why i hate limits on liability because if the government comes in and says you can't sue if you get hurt at the indy 500 if a tire flies off and goes all the way to the top then the indy 500 people are going to have to decide uh or can they, they can say well you know we could fix this but it'll cost like x millions and then they're going to value that against the chances of it ever happening again uh, and saying, well, it's not going to happen again. And even if it does, the liability is limited now down to this. So we'll just uh, we'll take our chances. Now, if they would had, uh, if there's no artificial limit on liability, they may say, well, this guy died. We got gouged for a few million here. Uh, we better take measures so it doesn't happen again uh, and keep our safety up. And then you know the other side is going to say, well, the government can just start mandating safety. And you tell me where that slippery slope stops, and uh, then we can get to the bottom of it. And it never stops, by the way. Uh, so I, I guess I would say let the market work itself out. Uh, there's probably some good arguments on the other side, but that, that's how I look at it. McDonald's is no different. They had they, they were on notice. They had some uh, other issues. They decided not to fix them, and this woman got hurt, and uh, you know they got stung for it. So I got no problem with it. This is like the blowing up Pintos and all the other issues that you. Oh, hear. dude, do not go with the Pinto yeah. thing. Yeah. So. Okay, so I know a little bit about that. Right, okay, so go. so let me let me roll my schwantz out. And, All right, and be slam the big, it on the yeah, table. Yeah, let right, me be the big dog and wag my meat. So the Pinto case is particularly, it's bullshit. So there were actually no more incidents of rear-ending explosive, uh, fiery accidents with Pintos than with any other uh, general statistic on small cars. So, so the, it, let me disabuse you of that. Number one. So the Pintos were no more susceptible to blowing up from an ascender than the general fleet of small cars sold during the same years. Number two, the idea that we do a, a cost benefit analysis 
in anything. And you just mentioned that, you know, shouldn't the market do a cost-benefit analysis and arrive at, at, at their own conclusion? Well, yeah. So the insider at Ford that leaked that to Ralph Nader and the people, you know, who wanted to make an issue out of the Pinto thing that leaked the memo where Ford did indeed do a cross cost benefit analysis of, uh, providing more, uh, tank protection. Um, so what? So I say, so what? So, I mean, you could do that with Boeing aircraft. You could do that with, uh, uh, Reese's cup wrappers. You could do that with anything that's made on an assembly line, you know? You bet. It, yeah. So, I mean, should, should we put Reese cups inside a uh, lockable steel cases and then charge, you know, $45 for no. two re- I mean, come on. Here, but the, we're I saying mean, the same thing. Yeah. Um, what I am Let's saying is if you put an artificial limit on liability, then you are going to, it, it, there's always a cost-benefit analysis. You can make everything as safe as you want. I've always said you could eliminate all crime, just put jackboots on the ground and keep everybody in the house and don't let anybody leave, sort of like they did last year. Never mind. But they, uh, uh-huh. But you can make anything as like money and cost and time and effort can make products infinitely safer, 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 safer. But it doesn't always make sense to do that. If you put an artificial limit on liability for a company, however, then they are discouraged, at least to the extent uh, of that liability, from making it safer when they otherwise would. So if it, it may still make sense. What you've done is you've created the standard uh, to say, all right, I don't have to worry about this because it's only going to cost me X dollars. Right. But if it were infinite, I'm, it may make sense for me to fix the gas tank, for me to make the coffee not as right. hot, for me to put a fence up, to put a net up, to do those things. But Steve Arino, let me, okay, so I got a law degree too. Let me throw this back at you. Sure. So your industry, the legal industry, which has a lot of problems. Tons of Okay, them. tons of problems with, with uh, fairness to defendants. And I'll give you a good one. So let's let's talk about tobacco. Let's talk about... Chrysler minivan, rear hatch lids, you know, let's talk about the Pinto. Let's talk about, I mean, there's a million of these kinds of cases, the Tylenol, uh, the Tylenol, uh, uh, issue back in the, I think it was the eighties where, uh, somebody had poisoned Tylenol. Putting cyanide in the cap. Yeah. I don't think they ever, well, maybe they just recently figured that out in the last few years, but at any rate, the problem with Joe defendant is that he can be sued in 51 forums for the same damn thing. So you guys are like a Rico syndicate. Okay. When I say you guys, it's unfair to you, but the, the, the tort, the, the products liability lawyers are like a Rico syndicate. They either get the attorney generals together. You get the 50 States plus the federal government all suing the tobacco industry and or all suing uh Boeing on the 737 or all suing, you know, Ford. And so you have a defendant instead of being sued in one place and being able to make that market decision that you're talking about, they're looking at 51 separate defenses that they may or may not be able to consolidate, okay, depending on whether the plaintiffs agree. They may be looking at, you know, this overwhelming legal challenge that really is like uh, it's it's like a RICO action where, you know, the tobacco industry just says, oh, screw it, you know, throws her hands up and just says, 
you know, I think it's complete bullshit that people did not know smoking was hazardous to their health, that that had been on packages, that had been promoted. Yeah, you go back to the 40s and there's an, a jingle about, hey, I'm a doctor and I smoke and L&Ms are great for you. Okay, but hey, in the last 50 years, everybody knew damn well they weren't good for you. And, and in fact, they inflicted harm. But instead of, you know, people bearing any responsibility for their own actions, you know, they, they dig in and somebody has a whistleblower memo and, and then all of a sudden you're sued by 50 attorney generals and the, and the federal government. Well, what are you going to do? You're, 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 you're coerced. You're, you're, it, you don't get a fair hearing because you can't do it in one place. You're going to have to defend in 51 forums. You're coerced into settling when the market, which you espouse and I espouse, the market would otherwise say, well, no, screw it. We're going to court. We won our day in court. Well, the tobacco industry never got its day in court, man. Okay, they won all those cases until they settled. They won virtually, not everyone, but they won virtually every single tobacco case by a victim of tobacco where, you know, that person had clear knowledge and, you know, that, that it was dangerous and, you know, none of the post settlement tobacco companies, uh, and there are some like on Indian reservations, none of those are paying into that victim's fund today because they weren't in that litigation. It's complete crap, Steve. All right. So let me, uh, there's my rant. All right. No, fair enough. Good rant. Here's the thing. They were winning those lawsuits. And I guess the question is, why then did it stop? Why did it change? What was the watershed moment where they stopped winning the lawsuits? Because you had you had bottomless pocketed attorney generals coming together, okay, and and forcing and like I said, in a Rico like way, you know, I mean, they were a, it was a monopolistic. It was the government getting involved. It was the government getting it involved. It wasn't the private litigants. It exactly. was the government getting involved. And now here's the thing. That's right. The government heavily then and now regulates the tobacco industry. They subsidize it for and F's sake. That's right. So the tobacco companies were brought to their knees because they they were, it was like this, uh, this uh, conspiratorial mishmash where they were, the government regulated them. They were settling with the government. The government and the other side was going to say, we well, can keep going, but now you got to put these warnings on. And they're saying, it's like, it, it was, it, it was the government that screwed that up. Uh, not the market. The government got involved in the market and screwed it up. I guess that would be my response. It was, it was government lawsuits. Like what the hell is the government doing suing a private company? for selling a perfectly legal product right. that the government itself so the government passed a law the government passed a law permitting such a lawsuit and now we have it now if uh, okay well the government passed such a law limiting liability at the Indy 500 so yeah. why don't you accept that I uh, no I don't accept either <laughs> <laughs> I don't think one one I don't okay. accept either I would okay. say both for were you. bad okay so you're consistent Good I would you. I would say that uh, if you dug into that government lawsuit crap with tobacco, it was more about coercion uh, based on a threat of regulatory changes that the tobacco company didn't want. Well, but also the probably billion dollar uh, legal defense bill that was going to come due, you know, 50 separate trials and, 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 and one against the federal, one with the federal oh, government. Sure. 
I mean, my God, you know, I mean, in, in bottomless pockets. In the, in it's the like, private it's, it's, sector. It's like me against the FBI. If the FBI wants to put me in jail, they'll find something I did illegal. Now, in the private sector, that would have become a class action, which sort of creates a single forum. Uh, it would have been certified as a class, and they could have defended it. But it, because of, I, I don't know the nuance of the procedure or the the statutory scheme under which they were sued by states attorney generals, state attorney generals, attorneys general. Maybe? Well, and, and yeah. Steve, as you know, that's a thing now, right? The yeah. AGs get together on guns. They get together. Oh, dude, they're doing they're, it right they're, now on the vaccine doing, stuff. Yeah. They're doing the same what 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 I call RICO deal, which we, we which we wouldn't allow a mafia families to all get together and we we rico them in prosecutions it's a reverse rico it's sure. it's it's the ags ganging up but that is not on a single industry that is not a limit on liability uh it, it, the the limit on liability for things like your uh indy 500 example yeah uh i find that i would bet that will lead to unintended adverse consequences if you limit liability on like, uh, or well, you create these artificial limits on on tort reform or whatever it is, it almost always will create an incentive structure that goes in a direction you don't like, and uh, you know that's the that's the ultimate problem. Well, do you know what a, a an airline passenger ticket would cost if the liability wasn't limited? It would be extremely high. Maybe. Oh, it would. I mean, Maybe. come on. I mean, Maybe. the money's got to. I mean, they got to pay an insurance premium, or they got to bank uh, some money away to pay that, or they got to be ready to go bankrupt at a, at a, at the snap of a finger. Maybe you would. I'd have to play it out. I'd have to sort it through in my head as to actually how that would work out. So. I mean, if you kicked around scenarios, you could say, well, they'd have to pay all these claims. But maybe there wouldn't be so many claims because there's not a pool of money that they just have to pay automatically. Well, Steve, this is how whacked out our society has gotten. People sued the World Trade Center, which was in rubble. Sure, and the government stepped in and settled that nonsense. Because the World Trade Center... Funded it. I I don't know what they expected the World Trade Center to do, have Sergeant York... uh, uh, anti-aircraft systems mounted at the top of the World Trade. People sued the World Trade Center because the World Trade Center was brought down by two and aircraft, they, and they sued the airlines. And, and here's the thing: I don't think I mean, those you lawsuits. You have got to be kidding me! I don't think the lawsuits would have gotten legs. And I think if it meanders through the system, then it wouldn't have happened. I don't think that kind of liability would happen. I think it finds its own level. Steve, um, do you think anybody in? Do you think anybody in Hawaii? which was an American protectorate at the time and not a state, after Pearl Harbor. Do you think anybody sued the U.S. Navy? Of course not. So what the hell are we doing? Even this top, is, again, this why is the government getting involved off, in settling dude, private claims. People it's are insane. so lucky I'm not on the federal <laughs> ju- judiciary because... We're running for president. Well, let me tell you, if right. a lawsuit came on my desk the day after 9-11, you know, from some schlock attorney in New York City because, you know, the the the... the the so, hero, the hero firemen, you know, and those were the heroes, the, the people who went up the stairs instead of down the stairs, because he, a hero fireman's family, God bless them. And this is not a comment on the firemen or their family, but but because some lawyer convinced a, a, a widow that, uh, well, that World Trade Center is liable. 
bullshit. I'd have thrown that case right the hell out of my court. You bet you would have. And you would have done it by researching the law. You would have done it by looking at the precedent. You would have analyzed the issue to determine whether it was liability. But instead, the government steps in and funds claims. Well, I would have said sue Saudi Arabia. Sue sue Al-Qaeda. Fair enough. That's what I would have said. I mean, let's put the onus on the the, uh, perpetrator. You, You bet. So now we've created a structure and a precedent not that determined is there li- the question of liability, whether the World Trade Center or anybody responsible for the World Trade Center or anybody responsible uh, for the fire department or anybody else involved had liability for an unforeseen act of war. Instead, we just took that as a foregone conclusion, funded it artificially out of government using taxpayer money, and created now a precedent that uh, that people just get money for that nonsense. So if we wouldn't have done that, it may have cost somebody a lot of money to defend it. But in the long run, it would have been established because the Honorable Norm Murdoch would have said, this is BS. And it would have gone up to, uh, what, what, the New York Second Circuit? Is that what it, it would have gone up to the Court of Appeals, and then it would have gone to the Supreme Court, and then it would have been resolved once and for all under normal market conditions, and then there would be no more claims. Now it's going to cost ongoing and ongoing and ongoing millions as things like that happen because we've established a precedent I mean, hell, we're paying the freaking illegal immigrants money now. I mean, it's 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 total right. insanity. Right. And I guess the consistent theme I have here is when the government intervenes in the legal marketplace, where juries decide, where legal precedent reigns true, and the government comes in and artificially monkeys with it. Yeah. It results in consequences like you're talking about. Like now we have liability for the World Trade Center. That's that's absurdity, utter it's absurdity, total absurdity, and and the. Like you said, the president of that, even the guy who headed that fund, uh, whose name escapes me, they just made a movie about that whole thing. Um, but even the uh, guy that was doling out the dollars said there should not be again, there shouldn't be another one of these funds in American history. It was in his, in his opinion, there was built-in unfairness. They were paying, uh, they were paying for dead stockbrokers more money to those families than they would pay for yeah. a dead cop and, and to or put a dead that fireman in in a in a, an individual's hands he hated doing that. yeah to put that in an individual's hands is insanity of course you it's have insane. to let a jury of your peers figure that crap out you have to let one the legal precedent determine is there liability sure and then two what is the damage right so if that is if, if that gets short-circuited by government intervention right. in any way shape or form we get absurd results like now the next time these terrorist jackasses take out one of our buildings, the government has to pay people. Uh, it, it just is. Um, well, think how the government pays for a military death. So the benefit it was, I think, a measly twenty five thousand, and then after or during one of the desert storms, one or two, they upped it to a uh, hundred thousand, which is still ridiculously low. So at, at any point, at any at any rate, my point is they don't pay a general's. Uh, widow or uh, a husband, uh, they don't pay a, a surviving spouse of a general, uh, let's say 250000 versus a common, you know, uh, squabby on, on a Navy ship, the 100000 It's 100000 regardless of rank, regardless of your income. It's just a stipend for that government employee that signed up to put themselves in jeopardy. Yep. Why we would pay victims uh, at, you know, at, uh, at some stock brokerage who, who got, More. 
or anything. Yeah. When when the people, the private citizens who were killed, say uh, at the Murrah Building uh, in Oma, in Oklahoma City. Well, they didn't get a dime from the federal government. So by opening up that Pandora's box now. And nobody got paid for uh, Pearl Harbor. They've they've created a precedent that that is is, uh, infinite. Infinite. All right. right. Well, with that, I got to roll. I got to get to court. I wish I could. Man, I would love to debate. This is good stuff. But uh, alas, I do have a real job, one that actually pays my mortgage and some (laughs) other bills. But... uh, uh, which which brings me to a point. If you want your own podcast, you can get your own podcast. Just look us up, Channel 511. If you got a question, you want uh, Norm and I, who apparently we are capable now of solving even worldwide problems like China, uh, just submit it. So any problem, I mean, look, after that, after solving that one, we got you. Uh, look us up at uh, lawyertalkpodcast.com. Submit a question. I'm behind. I, 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 I recognize that. There's a few I got to get to, but I will. Um, and uh, we'll get them answered. I've also dropped two other series, the Lawyer Talk Q&A, and that's probably where I'll answer your question. Uh, and I also have dropped the Lawyer Talk Breakdown, where I've done some uh, sort of quick and, uh, I don't want to call it dirty, but quick and effective legal analysis of certain problems, uh, including Kyle Rittenhouse and maybe one later today even. Uh, so uh, submit your questions there at lawyertalkpodcast.com. And as always, put my number in your phone right now if you need the law firm, 614-224-6142. You know, it is uh, the holiday season right around the corner. Everybody loves to get drunk the night before Thanksgiving, ruin your turkey dinner with a hangover, but don't ruin it with a hangover and a jail cell. That would really suck. Hey, Steve, question for you. So if I party a little too hard and I got a kid in the back seat and in a, in a kiddie seat and I get separated, right? Because I'm going to go to adult prison or jail and my kiddie's going to go to child protective services. Do I get $450,000? I'll represent you if you let me have a third. Okay, dog. All right. Um, so, it, yeah, great question. It is child endangering, by the way. If you do get caught drinking and driving with your kid in the back seat, uh, they call that child endangering as a matter of per se fact. Why well, don't we need family jails where I can bring my kid to jail with me? That's a great idea. That's right. Come come hang out with dad. Section 8 housing, yeah, essentially. We'll, we'll just call it house arrest. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, another riveting fascinating and inspiring episode of Lawyer Talk off the record, on the air, at least until now.